Hello, my name is Brock, and I've been going to NBC for about one year, and I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God, which surpasses all understandings, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome to Mansfield Bible Church. We're, here, we're glad that you're here with us today. Uh, what a joy it is to worship God with you uh, as we uh, uh, serve him together, as we look into his word together. And so I praise God for each and every one of you. Uh, I'd like for you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to finish our series in Philippians. Uh, it's been a quick series, just four weeks but it's been a great series. I have enjoyed this time through Philippians almost as much as any other. Getting a chance to do what one of my professors at seminary said, Howard Hendricks, he said, you want to zoom in and then you want to zoom out and then you want to zoom in and zoom out. When you're looking at a passage, you want to get close. You want to look and look at all the details, all the nitty gritty, and then you want to back out the telescope and you want to look at the bigger picture. And so we've been doing some of that here in this series where we've started out kind of backed off and then we kind of zeroed in on a few things and then kind of backed off again to see how they fit. And so I have actually feel like I have a, 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 just a, a great grip on the book as I am going to go uh, in a, uh, this Friday to Tanzania and I'm going to actually use these ser this series uh, to, uh, to um, uh, share with the uh, pastors in that uh, great country and nation. And as we've looked at this book, some of the things that we've said and the one thing that we've said is the focus of the book is have this mind. And a lot of people say, oh, it's a book about joy, and you'll see that in titles of, of books. And, and as I wrestled with it, I, uh, as you know, uh, I came out with Have This Mind based on chapter 2, where in verse 5 it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I began to look at, at that concept and, and realize that uh, as I saw uh, one of the commentaries I looked at said, you know, joy is used 15 times or rejoice and, and think or mind is used 16 times. And I was thinking, oh, wow. I wonder if we've kind of gotten it out of order that if, when we have this mind, then we experience this joy. And so I think that that's, in my mind, the case. And, and this is a very emotional book for Paul as he's writing he says, I make every my prayer with joy in verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 4. And then he says, uh, it's right for me to feel this way, or that's one of the places where it says to think this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers 
with me of grace, both my imprisonment and the defense of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And you can just feel the dripping of emotion and we'll see that at the end in chapter 4 as well. And so in this first chapter, what mind was it that we're supposed to have? A mind of the gospel. That we have a gospel mindset. That we live and breathe the gospel message. And we live it out in our lives. That we are a spiritual people. We're not just a people who think about things of this life. And we see that throughout this chapter, this idea of the gospel of Jesus. And in fact, he even says in 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Standing firm, he says, in one spirit with one mind. Striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so there's this idea of standing firm in the gospel that that's paramount in our lives. So one, a gospel mindset. Every person I meet, I think of that as a divine appointment that God has me in their life for some reason to sow a seed, to water a seed that's already been planted or to even be part of reaping the harvest that he has brought about. In chapter 2, the focus here is on the mentality of have this mind of Christ which is a, a mindset of humility. That we are humble like Christ was. And it talks about him uh, coming down and becoming a, a, a man and living among us. And that was a step of humility for him. Can you imagine being the king of glory and then hanging around with the likes of us? I mean, amazing that our God would do that when he knows that he's hanging around a sinful people that we're going to kill him. And yet he loves us so much that he died in our place. And so this mindset that we have of one another, this humility uh, we see in, in verse 3 of chapter 2, doing nothing from selfish ambition. So it's not about me, not myself, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And you think, wow, that's a tall order. I'm not sure. I was having trouble with chapter 1 thinking about having this gospel mindset. And now I'm supposed to have others more important than myself. And there's more. Chapter 3 talks about this idea that, that he wanted to know Christ here at the end of his life, writing from a Roman prison. He's saying that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and, and may share in his sufferings. And we kind of go, uh, uh, I like the first two part, not that one. Uh, and, and yet he, he wanted to become like him in his death. And you think here his focus was that he would know Christ. And we talked about that, that it's not just uh, factual knowledge. It's not that I read like an autobiography about God called the Bible and now I know more about him. I can read more uh, a biography about uh, you know, somebody uh, in, in our world today, and, 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 but I don't know them. I couldn't walk up and talk to them, and yet I know all these facts about their life. So how do I have this experiential knowledge with God? It means that I obey him. It means that I step out with him and I trust him in times when I'm kind of nervous about doing that. And I got to be honest with you, I'm kind of nervous going to Tanzania this time. And I find myself, I found myself last time, and I know part of it's the PCR test and all that kind of stuff, getting it on time and, and, and the travel. And, but I, I realize I'm, I'm going to be doing some things that I'm a little uncomfortable with. 
The first, time, the first uh, village that we'll be in out in the bush is a, a village called Taloha. And uh, there's an orphanage there. And, 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 and we were going to build this chicken coop for, uh, for the chickens because animals are getting them and killing their chickens. And so they depend upon them for, for food. And, and so we're going to build a chicken coop. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be building a chicken coop. And he said, oh, no, the guy who's leading it, oh, no, you're, oh, you're going to be evangelizing the, the rest of the village. What? Yeah, we're going to take a translator and, he, and he's going to take you to the village chief and then, you know, to different people, different key people in the village. And I was like, but you know, now you know my gift is in evangelism. My gift's teaching, right? And so I, I kind of, you know, and it's like, all right, well, here we go, right? I know the gospel, but I don't know what I'm going to run into as an animist, a Muslim. A, I don't know what kind of person. And, and I, I'm, I realize, okay, God, you're going to take me a little out of my comfort zone. But you know what? Jesus died for me. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I will not hold back. I will say yes. And trust the Lord. I've got to trust him in that. And that's what chapter 4 is all about. It's about how do you, how do you live a life where you're gospel focused and you're spiritually minded. And that now you're thinking about others even more than yourself. Which isn't natural for us. That's not our default. It's to think about ourselves. And how am I going to be a person who, who is pursuing God and experiencing God? It's because I rely on him. That's chapter 4. Chapter 4, he's wrapping it up and he's saying, we need to rely on him. We need to trust him. And guess what? There's reasons why we don't rely on him. And here it is. We're self-reliant. That's a high value for Americans. We want to be self-reliant. We want to have the confidence that we can do whatever it is we need to do. And if it's something we don't know how to do, we just don't do it. Because we don't want to look like we're incapable or incompetent or we get somebody else to do it. And so we find ourselves avoiding some things and then jumping in full bore because we have self-confidence that we can make it happen. I can do this. That's our, that's our mantra for life. And the minute I say, I can do this, I can make this happen, what am I saying? I don't need you. I mean, think about that. The minute I feel like I need to be in control, so I'm going to try to control everything. Guess what? You go on a mission field, flexibility is the name of the game. Stuff's going to happen that you don't expect. I, I, every time I go, I never know what is going to come up next. And yeah, we have a plan. It's all laid out, and it never seems to work according to plan. Something happens, always does. And if I'm a control freak, then guess what? I'm going to be so stressed out, it's not, uh, uh, not even funny. I think that's why he talks about anxiety, by the way, in this chapter. Ralph Waldo Emerson in, in, in 1841 wrote a deal on self-reliance where he, re he urges his readers to follow their individual will instead of social expectations. And then he emphasizes following one's own voice rather than an intermediate like the church. And then he posits that this effects of self-reliance will alter religious practices. He could have been writing today, couldn't he? And I think we're following some of his advice as a nation. Discovering one's true self and be, have true independence. Individuality, personal responsibility, nonconformity were hallmarks of his writing. And so this hyper-individualism that we see in our culture today is just directly born out of some of the things that he said. And I began to think, we do that. As believers, we do that. We're following Emerson's advice too, and we shouldn't be. Why? Because of things like Jeremiah 17, 5. 
Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in the Lord and who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. It turns away from the Lord because we're trusting in ourselves, And so we become risk averse because God often puts us in situations that are over our head. And I thought, and I know the minute I say that, you go, wait a minute. I thought God would not give us more than we can handle. Uh, That's not true. He always gives us more than we can handle. And here's a passage on that. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, verse 8, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. Wait, wait, Paul. What are you saying here? Beyond your strength? I didn't think it was. Yeah, beyond our strength, and it gets worse. That we the spirit of life itself. Indeed, we had felt that we would receive the sentence of death. Oh my goodness. God will give us more than we can handle. Why? Well, he says why. But that was in order to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If I could do it myself, if I'm self-reliant, what it means is I don't need God. I will only trust in myself. And when you think about that, you realize, oh, wow. In my life, if I'm only trusting myself, And this is my strength. This is all I'm going to be able to handle in life. This is all I'm going to be looking for in life. Because what happens if I'm trusting the Lord beyond my strength? Well, he's giving me the strength to handle whatever it is beyond me. And what we typically want to do when we're like this, we're uncomfortable in this position, by the way, we start pulling back when we should be leaning into it. Because guess what? This is all I'll accomplish on my own. I can accomplish at least this when I'm trusting in the Lord and these moments of life when I'm over my head. And every time we do something we're uncomfortable with, we're over our heads. And I I began to think one day, so what if I can do this with the Lord giving this and I'm doing this, can I do this? What's the limit? There isn't one. We can accomplish way more trusting the Lord than we could ever do on our own. And we are missing out if we're relying on ourselves. We're missing out on seeing the hand of God work. I had someone come to me this week and they they had a a need. And and so they were were saying, well, here's the need. And and we had some uh, uh, repairs to the house. And and, and now we had to spend the money that we were going to apply to this person's need. And we don't have the money to help them. What are we going to do? And I said, well, first the thing I think, let's pray. But then I want to encourage you to call about three people. And you, you, think, you know who might be interested in this particular thing. And let's pray that God might use them to meet this need. Came back 15 minutes later. It's taken care of. If they had not, if God had not wiped out whatever they had it, that they were going to use to be able to help with this need, they would have done it on their own. But instead... God made it possible for them to see his hand at work and they would have missed it. And I think so many times we miss it because we just handle it ourselves, and we take care of it instead of trusting the Lord. And we miss out on the joy of that, by the way, too, because there is great joy as we see in this book in, in Philippians where there is great joy in trusting the Lord to do what he can do and, and, and we see his hand at work. That's why I think that he starts out this, this chapter 
with the word therefore. You've heard it said before, when you see the word therefore, ask what it's there for, right? Well, it's pointing back. What is it pointing back to? It's pointing back to what he just talked about, verse 20 of chapter 3, and, and verse 19, in fact, it says, they have their mindset on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Why is he talking about our citizenship all of a sudden? Because he wants us to know you are citizens of heaven. You have a whole different mindset. When, you have a, when you're a citizen of heaven, you've got God working on your behalf. In fact, we are working with God to accomplish what his ends and his goals are, not mine. And he says, therefore, based on this, that you're citizens of heaven, and he, and he emphasizes that by saying, my brothers and my beloved. He wants us to know these are believers he's writing to. And he's saying, therefore, you're citizens of heaven because you believe on Jesus. You've responded to the gospel that I talked about in chapter 1. And then the emotion comes out, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown. You go, wow, such a personal love he had for these folks. He says, stand firm. Stand firm. That idea of being firmly committed to belief. Stand firm. But he doesn't say stand firm in your own strength. He says stand firm. And here's the key phrase. In the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in him. Stand firm relying on Jesus. Stand firm as you are walking through life. And you know what? There's some things that will cause us not to want to stand firm. Some of it's the self-reliance stuff, but some of it's personal relationship problems, as we see in verse 2. That's why I think he begins to talk about that. It's not just some random thing. He went, oh yeah, by the way. No, he said, I want you to stand firm, and here's something that can take you out. I encourage Euodia, and I encourage Syntyche to agree in the Lord, and to get along. And these are people who have been working side by side for the cause of the gospel. I mean, these are not just somebody showing up. I mean, these are people that are participating in the gospel message that he talks about in chapter 1. They're participating. They're involved. But something happened. And Paul understands this well because he struggled with Barnabas about John Mark. He had a sharp disagreement, it says in Acts 15, with, with uh, Barnabas. And they parted ways because of John Mark deserting them on the first missionary journey. And yet in Timothy, you see him saying, hey, bring John Mark. Bring him along because he's useful to the ministry here. So there's been a resolution of some sort. We don't hear how it happened, but we just know that it happened. And here we see Paul who understands these relational issues. And it's so amazing that many times people walk away from the church and from the faith, not because of some theological issue, but because somebody hurt their feelings. They got hurt. Or they didn't have a prayer answered. They were praying that somebody would survive a sickness. And they didn't survive. And so now they're angry at God. And, but there's this idea of these relational issues that cause us to walk away and not stand firm. And he's saying, there are times when we need help. And so he says, and I don't know who he's addressing here. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion. Who's he writing to there? We don't know. The, 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 the phrase true companion all, uh, actually comes from the, the Greek word sisygus. And some have thought, well, maybe that's a proper name. Sisygus and Clement. He says, they've, uh, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, come alongside these ladies, help them out. Sometimes we need that help. We need people coming along. We can't quite bring it 
together in, as a, in, in resolution as it needs to, but that person, Clement, knows one of them, and Sisygus knows the other one, and, and, and they, can, they can speak to them and talk tenderly to them and try to get them to come back to the table. And then I love this next phrase, whose names are in the book of life. Now think about that for just a second. That's a strong statement on assurance of salvation. Because he's saying this, this is the word of God. And he's saying this about people who haven't died yet. So they could mess up later in life. He's saying their names are in the book of life. And you think, oh yeah, but there's some passages that talk about being blotted out. Look at Revelation chapter 3. That's one usually people go to, chapter 3, uh, verse 5. In Revelation 3, verse 5, he says, uh, oh. And he says, the one who conquers, and if you understand in, in, in John's writings, when he talks about conquerors or overcomers, he's talking about those who believe. Only who, who is the one who overcomes? It is he who believes. So that's the one who overcomes the world. So when he's talking about it, he's talking about faith. The person of faith will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And some say, oh, well, that implies that he might... No, that's, you can't go with the implication. You go with what he stated here. I will not do it. It won't happen. Their name will not be blotted out. That's a strong statement on assurance of salvation that when we are saved, he, our names are written in the book of life and they will never be blotted out. Wow, praise God. Praise God for that. And then he says, rejoice. Well, I'm going to rejoice now, having just thinking about the name being written in the book of life. Rejoice not in the circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness. Why does he say reasonable? Because at times we are unreasonable. We are like unreasoning beasts. And we won't be reasoned with. It's like a little child that you try to reason with. They won't be reasoned with. They will be inconsolable. You can't console them. And so he's saying, be reasonable. Let, let your, let you, you should be known for being reasonable, even at those moments when your emotions have got, gotten carried away, even at those times where you're struggling. There was, a, in the last month, a, a funeral that I heard about where two families couldn't get along. And these two families... Uh, were, I mean, it was a divorce that had happened, and they lost a daughter. And they came together, but they, they weren't coming together. It was not pretty. And they, they ended up having to even come into the funeral from two different places, and even the police had to be called to escort some, one person out or one couple out. And, and, and you look at that and go, oh, wow, look at this. This, this is tragic. It's a tragic situation, and you can imagine how if you lost a loved one and, and somebody dear to you and somebody young, that you would be upset and you would be somewhat unreasonable. But those are the times when we need to be trusting the Lord. Those are the times which the only way that we can respond reasonably is whenever we are focused upon the Lord and what He is doing and that He gives us the strength. No other way will it work. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And then the famous couple of verses. Do not be anxious about everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I have found in my life this is one of the hardest verses to apply. Have you ever found that to be true? Where you find yourself anxious and you can't seem to calm yourself down. And somebody comes alongside and tries to help you calm down and you find yourself still anxious. And you think, where is this peace that passes understanding? I've been praying. I've been talking to the Lord about it. Where is the peace? And a few years ago, my wife noticed something that uh, was hindering my understanding of this verse. And it was the little number six stood in the way of a complete idea. If you take that little six out of the way and you read the last part of chapter five, what does that say? The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. Oh, wow, that's the key. The key is knowing the Lord is near. That's where the peace that passes understanding comes from. And it was just like, wow, what a revolution that was to realize I'd been trying to apply this passage and I was feeling uh, defeated by it because I would, I would pray and I would ask the Lord. I think, why don't I feel this peace? And in fact, I would feel convicted by it because I think here's a command of God and I was thinking, am I walking in sin because I got this anxiety? And I don't think that's the reason that Paul wrote this here to make us feel guilty about our anxiety and feel like we're in more sin. I think he wrote it to comfort our hearts. Fear not. Do not be anxious. Do not let your hearts be anxious, Jesus says. Trust in the Lord. Trust also in me. Wow. He doesn't want us to be anxious. He's not saying it out of condemnation. He's saying it because he wants us to experience the joy that this book talks about when we trust in the Lord. And when I realized that idea, the Lord is near, and I just began to focus, that's why we talk to him. That's why there's four phrases there with prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, make a request, four words about prayer. Well, when I know the Lord is near, I'm talking to him. And it reminded me of times when I went to Rio Dosa with my dad and I was a young, a young boy and uh, I was scared of the bears. It was night and we were walking and I'd just reach up and grab his hand. And I would feel the peace that passes understanding. He might be, have, have his head on a swivel looking for bears, but I, I, was feeling, I was feeling it, you know. I was feeling this peace that passes understanding. Well, this morning, this morning... I was blown away by something else in this passage that I think I missed. You know, I, I've been working on this, this book for the last month or so, and I've been reading through it. Howard Hendricks would always say, you want to read through a, a book that you're going to preach about 40 times in different versions before you preach it, because you want to know it well. And so I, as I was reading and, and studying over the last month, I, 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 you know, you think that you have it together. You think you understand a passage. And then all of a sudden this morning, a word jumped out at me that got in the way of me understanding the next part of this anxiety issue thing. And that's the little word in verse 8, finally. I was thinking he would say, okay, in conclusion, like a person, you know, wrapping up a sermon and you kind of go, oh, that doesn't mean anything, right? That means he's going to go on about 20 more minutes and bring up about three more topics, Right? Don't laugh at that. Don't be looking at me that way. Um, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I realized this morning, I thought, why would he say finally, brothers? And then he goes on and says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly in verse 10. And he kind of goes on almost like he, he ignored what he just said. 
And then I realized, I don't think he's saying finally in conclusion of the book. I think he's saying finally in conclusion about this topic of anxiety. And it blew me away. I went, oh my, I think I've missed this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Have your mind on these things. And a lot of people go to this passage and say, see, Christians are supposed to have positive thinking. And Norman Vincent Peale uh, uh, years ago said, well, you know, this law of attraction, and you've heard that with Oprah and Eckhart Tolle and these different uh, people, that the law of attraction, that if you think positive thoughts, then the universe is going to line up to your positive thoughts. And guess what? That's hogwash. Sorry, I don't mean to beat around the bush about it. <laughs> it's not true. I'm not God. God is the one who he thinks thoughts and the universe lines up to, to align with him. I am not God. It doesn't happen for me. And it's not supposed to. Yeah, if I have positive thoughts, I'm more confident. I feel more hopeful uh, because my positive thoughts are focused upon him. And in fact, when I began to look at this passage and this list of things... And I remember hearing years ago, somebody said, well, the only one that fully fulfills all of these things, these eight things here, is Jesus. And so I did a little study. Whatever is true. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Whatever is noble. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Talk about nobility. Whatever is honorable or whatever is just or right. Jesus Christ, the righteous one in 1 John. Whatever is pure, 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin. Whatever is lovely, Haggai says, calls him the desire of the nations. Whatever is admirable, Psalm 27. One thing I long for, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Whatever is excellent, his works are perfect. We sang about that. Whatever is praiseworthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. It's Jesus. And when we begin to think about Christ, I realize that's, that's a missing piece there for anxiety for me. It's not only the Lord is near, and it's not only talk to Him, but it's fill your mind, fill your heart, fill your thoughts full of Him. Think on these things. So I was thinking about that in regard to anxiety, and, and, and I, I, I had read this illustration. I love it. And the illustration is this. You, I have an ordinary cup. It has nothing in it, right? Well, but it has air in it, right? So how do you get the air out of this cup? Well, you can try to suck it out, you know, stick your mouth on there and pull it, you know, and then it goes, right? Try to suck the air out, but you don't get all the air out. You don't have a complete vacuum on this thing. In fact, it would crush this particular cup if you tried to pull all the air out. So how do you get the air out? It's simple. You fill it with something else. And it pushes all the air out. 
how do I get rid of the anxiety in my life? I fill it with something else. I fill it with Jesus. Whatever is true, whatever is lovely. Because those are not the thoughts in my head when I'm anxious. When I'm anxious, I'm thinking about all the things that could happen and the things that are out of my control. I find myself, even as I get ready to go to Tanzania, this anxiety of heart as I struggle with, Lord, will I get my PCR test in time? Will I be able to get my flight? Will they let me? I mean, all these different questions, these travel questions that we never had to deal with before. I remember last time when I went to Tanzania, I had to do the PCR test 72 hours before, had to have it before I could get on my flight. And you're trying to time it, you know, because I mean, that means you've got to, and it's, it takes 24 hours to get the test. I mean, you're thinking, trying to figure the timing on all this and hoping the lab will get it back to you in time. And then I had another test, a rapid test in Atlanta, another rapid test in Amsterdam, another test when I got to Tanzania. I mean, I didn't have COVID. <laughs> Just saying, you know, tested four times going in. And, and so we find ourselves with these anxieties, and I realized I need to fill my heart and my thoughts with Christ because he's the one who is true. He's with me on the trip. He's with me at that moment. He's at the lab. He can make whatever happens that he wants to happen. I just need to trust him. I'm not in control. And we don't like not being in control. We like just trusting in ourselves. And he's going, no. No, I'm not going to let you have it that easy. I want you to trust me. I want you to rely on me. The very thing that I need to do is what chapter 4 is talking about. That I fill my mind with Christ and it pushes all the anxiety out of my heart. That's why he says, I rejoiced in the Lord, not rejoicing in myself. Rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but you didn't have opportunity. He talks about being content. I've learned to be content. And I was thinking, how I stand firm in the Lord is I make sure that I have great uh, resolved relationships as best as I can. I don't have anxiety in my heart that's, that's, that's unresolved, that is undealt with, and that I know that God is near and that I need to talk to him and I need to push out those anxious thoughts. But then I'm content with whatever situation I'm in. Whether I'm in a situation at the airport, whether I'm in a situation in Tanzania, whether I'm Whatever it is, I think that's why he says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm relying on him, but I'm content. In his case, he was content. If he didn't have the money, he made tents. If he had the money, he didn't make tents. I mean, it was just pretty simple, and he just did the ministry. I think that's why he says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches. In other words, I'm trusting in him for strength. I'm trusting in him for provision, not only of my needs, but also of everything else the right words to speak as I speak to some of these village leaders, especially in that first place. As I speak in the other two places, when I'm not up in front of pastors, I'll be in the evangelism room. We'll be sharing Christ with those who are waiting for medical attention. And when we do that, he says, we'll seek the fruit that increases to your credit because we're trusting the Lord. And we're, when we're participating in the gospel, this partnership with me in giving, he says. And that we, and then when we're supply, when we're trusting him, it says that these things are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's worship when I'm trusting him. And I'm trusting him to work 
and bring the gospel message to those that I encounter and that my life, I want it to be lived according to the gospel. It's one of the reasons why before this trip, I wanted to lose some weight. And I wanted to lose some weight because I was thinking, I'm going to a people that have food insecurities and I don't want to go as this portly American that would take away from my message. I couldn't quite get to where I wanted to be, but I, I made a goal. Uh, even this morning, I hit a goal and I was like, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for that. Because I want my heart, I want everything about me, my physical being, to reflect the gospel message that God loves them. God loves you. And in doing so, that means I'm going to love other people because that's what's on the heart of Christ. And I'm going to love those people in Christ because I'm knowing him and I'm experiencing him and I can't wait to get more of that when you begin to see God's hand at work and you know it was God at work you want more of that you want more of him and when you're living that way you're beginning to rely on him and not yourself the book of Philippians a powerful book about how we should live and how we should trust the Lord and then watch what he does I am so excited to be serving the Lord and being able to travel to Tanzania, but I am so thankful that you guys, I'm not doing it on my own. You guys are here with me. Some of you have given to the trip. Some of you have given to the Bibles that we've sent and, and other resources, uh, and, and all of you can pray, and I, I long and covet your prayers for this trip. Because this isn't a Greg Buckles trip and a Kendall uh, McQuarrie trip. This is a God trip. And this is a Mansfield Bible Church trusting the Lord trip as we look to him, as we rely on him and see what he can do. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you that Jesus died on a cross so that we could spend an eternity in heaven with you. What an incredible message where justice and mercy come together like we sang about. Your justice and your righteousness come together with your mercy and Christ fully fulfilled the justice as well as provided mercy for us who deserve death and yet we get life. Lord, I pray that that message would just be dripping from our hearts and our lives. We'd be living it every day. And I pray, Lord, that you would touch the lives of those that we minister to, even this week, both in Tanzania and here. And Lord, I pray that you would just guide and lead us all to walk with you in the gospel, reaching out to others in humility, knowing you, experiencing you, and relying on you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.